the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. Today's guest is environmental horticulturist and landscape designer Kim Ironman. Her company is Eco Beneficial, which was created to change the way we think about and manage our landscapes. She's got an award winning website and podcast, and she also consults, teaches, and designs native landscapes in the New York tri state area. She's here today to talk about her book, The Pollinator Victory Garden. Thanks for chatting with me, Kim. Oh, thank you for having me, Christy. Yeah, and you're in upstate New York, or is it upstate? No, I'm actually downstate. I'm uh, very near New York City, about 16 miles north of Midtown Manhattan. Oh, so scary times for zone. you. Yeah, you I'm are. I'm in the hot zone. <laughs> yeah, so are you sheltering in place right now? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I figured that uh, because Victory Gardens are all the rage right now, we should talk about pollinator Victory Gardens, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, can you just describe a little bit about your garden to our listeners so they can get a sense of your your place? Sure. So um, I am in a small landscape, as I said, very close to uh, midtown Manhattan. Um, So every inch is precious, and every inch had been completely (laughs) over-landscaped. My true confession, because I am a, uh, you're a plant nerd. I am uh, definitely a plant nerd and geek, and I love my plants. So things changed a little bit this year as I had a decaying railroad tie retaining wall, which had to be completely removed. So my backyard is now, um, most of it, two of three tiers, is now a completely fresh landscape that I get to redesign. So it's kind of depressing, but it's also kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that um, I can see in bloom, um, I'm actually looking out on my backyard um, from my desk here. Um, I have Amelanchier, uh, which is a service berry, June berry. Uh, um, There's a species um, in uh, California, in fact, that's quite delicious. It's an edible native plant. I have some uh, wonderful Mertensia virginica, Virginia bluebells that are spring ephemerals that are in bloom now with a beautiful uh, purpley bloom, very compelling to bumblebees that are coming out early. They can tolerate colder weather and rainy conditions, and they come out and they are looking for forage, uh, and then those plants will die back. I have uh, Uvularia grandiflora, um, marybells, great marybells, which is a charming plant with beautiful yellow flowers, and um, so on and so on. There's a lot going on already. Um, at this time of year, things are just really kind of getting into gear, and as um, person who's focused on pollinators, I'm always always thinking about plants that are going to support early pollinators, uh, early emerging pollinators. So uh, things like red maple and pussy will are always going to be part of my plant palette to try to achieve that, and spring ephemerals as well. Oh, very cool. Well, let's dive into the book. Your book is aptly titled The Pollinator Victory Garden. And, you know, because of COVID-19, the Victory Garden is very popular. So I figured we should include this. This would be great. And in chapter five of your book, you kind of guide people along on how to create one. But can you tell us what is a pollinator victory garden? Well, so obviously I'm riffing off of the pollinator, excuse me, the victory gardens for food defense that were created in World 
World Wars I and II, not only in the United States, but in a number of other countries. It was kind of a marketing pitch from governments to try to get people who couldn't fight to participate in the war effort and feel like they were connected to what was going on. And so just here in um, the United States, we had over 20 million um, uh, landscapes that had victory gardens. So I created this this uh, moniker, the Pollinator Victory Garden, a number of years ago, and I thought, you know, pollinators are in such trouble. Um, we really need to start thinking about them in this context where we're winning the war on pollinator decline. That's how the book title came about. That's how the book came about. That's very cool. And for our listeners who haven't yet read the book, because I want everyone to do that, can you share some specifics for design parameters? Like, you know, I've heard that it's good to have a three foot by three foot swath of one plant in order to attract the pollinators you desire. Are, is that true? And or what are your tactics? So um, you're, you're speaking of um, creating floral targets, which I describe in the book. And the, um, the research that you probably um, have heard is out of University of California, Berkeley, their bee lab. And uh, their research has indicated that a one square meter target, three square feet, of a single species is ideal for uh, pollinators to find. So in the absence of other research um, that really addresses this, um, that's kind of uh, my rule of thumb now. But here's the thing. Not all of us have the room right. to create three-foot square patches and get the kind of plant diversity that we need. I call this achieving floral balance, having a sufficient massing of plants or repetition of plants, along with a sufficient diversity of plants to attract many different types of pollinators. So what do we do when we don't have a huge landscape? Well, here I am. I've just described mine. <laughs> so there are a couple ways to approach this. One is use smaller groupings of a species of plant and repeat it throughout the landscape. The pollinators will find them. Many of our pollinators have a behavior called um, floral constancy, and they will go out on a foraging mission looking for one species of plant. Now, this is one of the reasons that meadows work so well um, for many of us who have terrible deer pressure. And gosh, from coast to coast, many of us do. Mm -hmm. So creating a meadowscape, a meadow-like garden where you have an erratic array of bloom, um, you see the same species but repeated erratically. We can mimic that in our landscapes and eliminate that uh, deer buffet, <laughs> that, <laughs> that large swaths of um, plants, um, you know, kind of create. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I have many clients who have very, very bad deer pressure. They're not deer fence. They're not deer, you know, spraying for deer. So we use a meadowscape approach to a great degree. And, and that affords us the opportunity to perhaps use some plants that are less deer resistant because mm -hmm. they're not so easy to find. Because if we only use deer resistant plants in our landscape, we are inherently limiting the diversity that um, our environment really depends upon and which is in such peril um, especially in, in the face of climate change. Right. So in a small space, what kind of a size are we looking at in terms of creating a meadow? How big would you say it should be? 
Well, uh, you can have a little pocket meadow or you can have a ginormous meadow. It really is up to you um, in terms of your aesthetic um, sense. Some people don't like a very random uh, array um, of plants. So sometimes we'll do a meadowscape with clients in the back um, and a more formal or swath-based plant groupings design in the front. That can work quite well. But here's the thing. So we have to start thinking about how many plants are we going to need for genetic diversity, for pollinator diversity, and to provide that succession of bloom mm-hmm. throughout the entire growing season? So here where I am in New York, we've got a growing period that's essentially early spring through late fall. You know, in parts of California, you've got virtually year-round yeah, growing pretty season. pretty much, yeah. Right, so it depends where you are. So you have to think about what is in bloom at any given point in time in the growing season and what is it attracting? So, for example, bumblebees are going to be um, attracted to different plants typically than, say, hummingbirds. There are some crossovers, but um, we want to have my rule of thumb for any landscape, like especially small ones, is to have at least three native plant species in bloom at the same time with an overlap of a bloom throughout the entire growing season. So, you got to do your calculation. I break this up in the book. Again, here in New York, I'm thinking about early spring and mid-spring and late spring and early summer and so on. Right. So I want to cover each of those time frames and make sure I've got a minimum of three different uh, native plant species in bloom. And I'm thinking about what what colors different um, pollinators like and what floral traits different pollinators like that are different. For example, whether there are nectar guides, uh, like bee pollinated plants often have those visible or sometimes invisible human humans uh, runways that direct them into the good stuff. Hmm. Um, Scent can be important for some pollinators, like a mild scent is very appealing to most bees, but um, birds have no sense of smell, so (laughs) that won't be important. Whereas nocturnal moths that are pollinators, and not all moths, by the way, eat as adults, so our um, uh, silk moths don't eat as adults, which is kind of interesting. So they're going to be attracted to a very um, strong sense of um, fragrance at night if they're nocturnal feeders. And in addition to the floral buffet that I'm talking about or the floral design, we also need to start thinking about uh, host plants. So most people have become familiar with the concept of host plants through the monarch and the milkweed connection. Right, the plant-specific relationships that pollinators have with them, yes. Evolution. We kind of disregard evolution um, by using so many non-native plants, not really thinking about those connections that have been created, for example, Monarch caterpillars are obligate feeders of milkweed plants, Asclepias species. But um, when I ask folks when I'm teaching or I'm speaking, I say, how, you know, who can uh, give me another example of a particular species of butterfly and uh, host plants that it feeds on? And it's it's usually a pretty quiet moment. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing I suggest to folks is pick up a regional guide to the butterflies in your area. Get to know what butterflies and moths you should be seeing and then do the research. I've got some examples in the book um, and also so some resources that I have um, uh, as suggestions, um, both in the book and on my website. But become familiar with the host plants and make sure that you've got them. Because if you're not feeding the caterpillars, it doesn't matter how many adults you feed, you're not supporting the entire life cycle. Right. That's and a very underrated part of gardening. 
That's true. And I, I had a, another guest on a while ago, Doug Tallamy, and he spoke mm-hmm. a lot about that and how, you know, the burden of capacity, the, yes. uh, yeah, the capacity, carrying capacity, carrying capacity mm-hmm. of, of plants and how we need enough of them to support the lifespan of, of you know, certain right. birds and butterflies and whatnot. And for any listeners who haven't read Doug's books, please do. He's one of my heroes. I've got some <laughs> interviews with him, too. And God bless him. He endorsed my book. Yay. Thank you, Doug. Yeah, he's but, great. Um, yeah, he's really um, a really thoughtful guy. He's a scientist who speaks like a human. Mm-hmm. And he's helped us really understand more of these evolutionary connections. But, you know, when we when we think about specific plants, for example, there's one here in the Northeast that I often use for clients because it's it's really a great early spring bloomer for early pollinators. And then it's a host plant for some butterfly species. And then it um, develops fruit for birds late in the summer to early fall for migrating birds. So that's spicebush, Lindera benzoin. So when I think about those plants, I call those multiple duty native plants, plants that are doing a lot in an ecosystem. They have a lot of ecological services, and especially with small landscapes. Those are the plants we should be really focused on because, you know, we can do more when we have plants that are doing more ecologically. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'm curious to know about what palette of plants you use in New York, because I know what the natives are here in California, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I have, we were talking before we started recording that I have, as you said, peony envy. Um, (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Right. Uh, About, you know, places that can grow things that don't really work here. So I'm curious to know what your palette of plants is. What are popular natives that are growing in your area? And, and let me just mention to you that um, there are a lot of uh, genera of plants that are common throughout the United States. Um, the species may vary. So an example of this would, of course, be milkweeds, the Asclepias species. Uh, so I have provided in the book and then also as a supplement to the book uh, on my uh, website under uh, uh, Eco Beneficial slash PVG, all these regional plant lists that give you the, um, the genera that would be native in your region. But it doesn't stop there, guys. You really need to do more research. You need to join the Native Plant Society in your region. Now, California is such a robust state with the California Native Plant Society where there are chapters for virtually every region in the state. And they're going to be a really terrific source of information to refer to in conjunction with these plant lists to figure out what works for you. Now, Calflora and Calscape, are you familiar with those, Christy? Yes. These are amazing, amazing tools, online tools. So you can plug your address into Calscape for California, and you can get a plant palette um, that will work in your region. But again, got to dig a little bit deeper because not all plants work in every landscape. Yes. If you've got a hot and dry and sunny um, landscape with uh, fast-draining soil, plants that like that condition will do well. If you've got a shady garden that's got much more clay in the soil and um, stays wet, then you're going to have to kind of refer to um, plant palette that reflects that. So I guess what I'm saying is you need to do a little bit of research. Start with some good critical lists. I hope mine will be helpful to folks and then dig a little bit deeper. There is a fantastic website called Biota. B-I-O-T-A of North America, where you can search on any given plant species in North America and see if it is native to your county. 
Oh, very Isn't that cool. cool. Yes. Yeah. So it's a learning process. It's more than aesthetics when we're talking about native plants. So, I mean, there's so many great native plants that um, I use in my landscape and clients' landscapes, but they will differ again, based on conditions. You know, I'll give you an example. So Monardas are pretty universal um, throughout the United States. So where you've got um, a really, really droughty condition, and, and you guys have mar- uh, Monardellas, I think, right? You uh, have Monardellas in California, so you've got a similar yeah. um, species. But um, so if you've got a really droughty uh, situation, there's a spotted bee balm, Monarda punctata, that does great. And boy, does it need good drainage. So if I've got a client who's got a landscape where it is just hot and dry and the drainage is fantastic, that's the one. I should definitely put that in my garden because I have incredibly <laughs> sandy soil, so it would do very well here. And, and check to see if it's native in California. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but you can check that Biota of North America to check, to check that. But say you've got a sunny spot that's really, really moist, or even a part sunny spot that's really, really moist here in New York. Um, Monarda didyma, scarlet bee balm, um, is a fantastic fantastic plant for that condition. And it's a different type of Monarda that takes a different kind of condition. So it really is all about right plant in the right place. You start with what's native to your region, then you've got to do the digging, what's appropriate for your site. And I give some instruction in the book in a very basic way, the, the steps that you need to take to analyze your site. And guess what? It starts with a soil test. Right. You've got a garden and you haven't done a soil test, you haven't done your homework. How can you possibly know it's going to thrive unless you know what the soil is like? Because different plants have different tolerances and different um, requirements. Yeah, I always say it's like driving with your eyes open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you another question about the book. What was the most interesting or most fun part to write? Well, I mean, it was all fun, honestly. And because it's stuff that I've been teaching and speaking about for a long time, you know, I had a lot of these concepts in, in my head. But I, I thought what was the most fun was to try to, um, to create pockets of information that were immediately useful to readers. So whether these were lists or sam- examples of things, um, I've got a lot of, um, you know, tables and this kind of thing where it kind of helped me think about what people need to know to do this easily. And it can be very easy when you just start out to simplify this and not get overwhelmed. I know I'm, you know, I'm talking a lot about plants and whatnot, but um, start simple. Don't overwhelm yourself. And that includes defining the area that you're going to turn into a pollinator garden. So if, if you think, oh, my God, I have an acre of land. How am I ever going to do that? Start with a small pollinator island. You know? And if you've got a lot of lawn, guess what? I call that the green desert. Yeah. And that is a pollinator wasteland. Totally. So let's, uh, let's get rid of that. You know, if you've got you know, some European weeds in there, like dandelions and clover, that's better. But it's still <laughs> not going to be you know, enough for pollinators. So start thinking about an area that you can convert in a way that's uh, doable for you so you're not overwhelmed and put it in a spot where you see it all the time. For example, I look out my uh, my window to my backyard. I want to see the action when I get bored with a computer. I look up and I look out in the garden and then oftentimes I'll see, you know, something that flies by, a, a bird that's um, nectaring like a hummingbird or bird feeding on, on fruit and it catches my eye. And it's um, it's so inspiring and so encouraging when you see that activity 
This is not pollinator related, but just an interesting story. Uh, a couple years ago in the fall, I spotted a little critter in my garden in uh, late fall, mm-hmm. and it looked like a rabbit, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. Is it, it didn't make sense. It was not a rabbit. So I went downstairs and took a better look, and it was a timber doodle. It was an American woodcock, a water bird that clearly was on its migration south. Oh. And it has kind of a rounded butt, and it's got this really long, pointy um, beak. I had never in my life seen one in person. And certainly this is not habitat for a, a timber doodle other than the fact that it found my yard as a safe haven to rest on its migration. Aww. Now, if that doesn't grab you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't have blood running in your veins. Yeah. These, these are the things that inspire people, seeing the pollinators come, the bees and the butterflies and the moths and the hummingbirds. And let's show some love for some of the unusual pollinators, right? Like we have pollinating flies that are extremely um, important. Uh, hoverflies, for example. Mm-hmm. We have different birds, including hummingbirds birds, but not limited to hummingbirds um, that Delhi Baltimore Orioles that will uh, pollinate plants. We have um, beetles that pollinate plants. Now, not all of these different categories of pollinators, not all of the species, obviously, are pollinators. But, you know, there are a lot of different creatures out there in the southwest and parts of very southern California. Bats are a really important pollinators for agaves, for sororo cactus, this kind of thing. So get to know the pollinators that you should be seeing, learn about them, and then figure out what you need to do to attract them. And it's not just about flowers. It's about habitat. Right. And I spend a lot of time talking about that in the book. So a landscape that has lots of flowers uh, is a floral buffet, but that's not enough for pollinators. We actually need to create complete habitat, and that includes places for different types of pollinators to live. And I cover this um, quite uh, a bit in my book, By Type of Pollinator. So what folks may not know, um, first of all, when we talk about bees, uh, virtually every American thinks that honeybees are it. Well, honeybees are European creatures. They're not native. Yeah. Um, they've been here 400 years. I'll give them credit for that. They, they are very good at pollinating certain plants. But before European bees came, um, everything, you know, everything that was bee pollinated was pollinated by our uh, native bees. And there are about 4,000 species of uh, native bees in North America, including uh, quite a few that are yet to be named and described, which is kind of interesting. Right. Um, and, we, and then California has the largest number of species. Yes, we have over a 1,000 species yeah. of native bees in California. Yeah, so more than double what we have here in, in New York. So the majority of our native bees nest in the ground, 70%. And they need bare soil in a sunny spot. And that's really a signal to us that we need to leave a little bare area in our landscape. doesn't have to be right next to your front door, but somewhere in your garden, dedicate an area for ground nesting bees and consider that really an important place, a place that you don't walk, you don't mess with, you leave intact. And you, I give some tips in the book for how to create that kind of um, area. But if you see bees nesting already, that's an area to expand. So you're talking about bare soil, not even covered in mulch, correct? Yeah, mulch is the enemy of of bee nesting in the ground. So bear, 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 and um, if you have to have slight vegetation, okay, bees will accommodate that. But you, it can't be uh, it can't be overly planted. 
There's a lot of uh, discussion about bee hotels now, and people think they're going to save the bees with bee hotels. Well, not so much, because mm-hmm. bee hotels accommodate only cavity nesters, which are about 30% of our uh, native bees. But um, some research out of Canada a couple years back has found that bee hotels that they studied really are more habitat for native wasps. Okay. <laughs> so they're more like wasp hotels. Now, native wasps have a lot of benefit. They're really excellent predators, etc. But, you know, they're not the intended resident of bee hotels. Right, right. (laughs) And they also found that the bees that did nest, by and large, in these bee hotels were non-native bees. Hmm. So I put it this way. We may be putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable (laughs) with with bee hotels. Um, I, I think the jury's still out whether it makes much sense. I mean, it's kind of like butterfly feeders were a big thing for a while, and then people figured out butterflies weren't using them mm-hmm. so uh, or, or butterfly houses so really best practice is to encourage the natural habitat that would be there so for cavity nesters think about places that they would naturally be attracted to so those are pithy plant stems so when you see a plant that's broken off um, here we've got like joe pie weeds but you know things like raspberries and whatnot they have very pithy stems or hollow stems that are great um, cavities for cavity nesting bees but uh, cavity nesters will go to um, holes in trees so if you've got a snag a dead tree or a tree that has some uh, beetle burrows, some beetle tunnels. Once the beetles are gone, these cavity nesting bees quite like that habitat. And we can, if you've got a landscape where you can do this and you're not shamed by your neighbors, <laughs> leave, leave um, some fallen logs on the ground and the same thing will happen. And then, um, you know, brush piles can be a wonderful um, habitat source, but bees kind of figure out where they want to go. Um, so provide a little bit of everything that you can and um, they will make that selection bumblebees particularly like to use old mouse holes uh, abandoned mouse holes so we've got a big problem with uh, Lyme disease here in the northeast and a lot Mm -hmm. of people are putting pemrethrin soaked cotton balls down um, mouse holes to deter, you know, the ticks because the first vector are are the uh, white-footed mice. Mm -hmm. Um, But what does that do? Well, you put an insecticide down a mouse hole. You're interrupting habitat. Yeah, yeah, so if bumblebees are trying to use that habitat, goodbye. Right. So being thoughtful about the creatures that you're trying to support kind of thinking like them. What do they need to survive and how can you make it better? And and part of that is not only what you do in your landscape, but encouraging, inspiring your neighbors to do the same, connecting the habitat that helps increase resources for pollinators and reduces mortality. So we've got a big movement here in the Northeast called the Pollinator Pathway Movement, where municipalities, um, community-based and volunteer-based organizations are leading the charge to develop um, pathways in their own towns and um, you can get on the map cool. uh, which is really cool and then a similar effort is Bee City USA, I write about them in the book uh, now a, an initiative of the Xerces Society listeners, I encourage you to join the Xerces Society, X-E-R-C-E-S which um, has been described as the Audubon um, equivalent for invertebrates 
Right. And uh, it's a nonprofit, wonderful organization with tremendous uh, info and uh, resources on their website. But that initiative, Be City USA, is exactly as it sounds, trying to get cities, municipalities to um, create habitat on a massive scale. And they also have a campus initiative where campuses can become uh, be campuses. It's, it's a wonderful movement. So that's cool. kind of where we need to get to. Not just Great. our landscapes, but connecting connecting the dots. Absolutely. And and I will make sure that we put all of these links in the blog post that accompanies this podcast. So Great. listeners, you'll be able to visit these websites she's talking about, but it is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? Oh, there's so many. But, um, so I'll give you, I'll give you kind of a throwaway and then I'll give you a specific one. Okay. So the first tip is every landscape matters. It doesn't matter how small your landscape is. It doesn't matter if you just have a a deck or a porch. You know, you can do native plants in pots and containers. Don't think that your landscape doesn't matter. So that's a word of encouragement. And, um, you know, really thinking like a pollinator (laughs) sounds a little crazy, but it's really important. So different shapes of um, flowers with different lengths of their their elements. For example, a, a plant that has a long Corolla tube will accommodate a long-tongued bee or perhaps a hummingbird, depending if that plant's attractive to a hummingbird. So there's a wonderful plant that's native here in the Northeast that I just love. It's uh, Lenisra sempervirens, uh, known as Carl Honeysuckle. I love this. It's a vine. It's not a crazy, you know, runaway vine. It's, you know, pretty well-behaved, but it'll do its job in covering a fence over time. And it is one of our longest-blooming plants in the Northeast. It starts out in the spring, and it goes all the way to fall. Um, it has these wonderful kind of red, orangish, uh, long tubular flowers with little yellow throats that are really uh, appealing to long-tongued bees. But think about that. If you were relying just on that plant to feed the bees, you'd kind of be in trouble because only the long-tongued ones can get in there. Only the hummingbirds can get in there. Mm-hmm. Short-tongued bees, like maybe, um, or a mid-tongue-length bee, like a honeybee, they can't get in that corolla tube. But what they will do on occasion is they'll get smart and they'll nectar rob, and they'll bite the base of the corolla tube and steal the nectar, which feeds them but doesn't pollinate the plant. So my tip is start thinking ecologically. Start thinking about what is going on in your landscape, you know, from an ecosystem approach. And I often um, tell folks, find the beauty in ecological function. It's not just how a plant looks, but it's what a plant does in nature and embrace that. And we'll all be better gardeners for it. Well, that, thank you, Kim. That is a very good tip. And I think Uh, It ties in a lot with what we've been talking about here at Garden Nerd to get people to think outside the box and not just plant, you know, what they want to look pretty. But it's it's all about taking care of everybody. And I think more than ever right now, that's so important. So thank you so much for that tip and for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. How do people find you? Well, they can take a look at my website, which is ecobeneficial.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on YouTube and Twitter, and um, what have I missed? I'm pretty much everywhere, Pinterest. (laughs) Um, So, and yes, and please take a look at uh, all the resources under the uh, Pollinator Victory Garden tab of my um, website, 
Uh, you'll find lots of information there in addition to what you'll find in the book. Great. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find a link to Kim's website at gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share her videos and links to all the other stuff that she mentioned during this podcast. And of course, where you can get your copy of The Pollinator Victory Garden. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!